0: Last week, we began a new series uh, here on Sunday mornings about the story of Abraham, whose given name was just Abram. And we talked about, we named four different promises that were made by God to Abram. And we're going to say those out loud again each Sunday morning just so that we remember, okay? God promised Abraham a name, a land, a son, and a blessing, okay? When God made these promises, Abram and his wife uh, were living in another land. And he said, Go to the land I will show you. And Abram and his entire family and tribe packed up their bags and moved all the way to the land of Canaan. Now, I think we talked about this in our uh, Bible class this morning down the Activity Center, but we have the privilege of hindsight. We know these stories. If you grew up in church, you might have heard where these stories end up. And so we know what happens. But I want you to imagine this morning reading this, living through this, through Abram's eyes. Just because he shows up in the land of Canaan doesn't mean everyone who lives there is just going to accept that, right? They're not going to agree that it belongs to him. And so Abram has to deal with two realities. First of all, God has promised to your offspring, I will give this land. The second reality is that there are people who are already living there. So immediately when God makes this promise, there's a contest, there's a battle over who owns the land. But today, we're going to see a different contest, a different battle, not over the land, but over the promise of Abram's family. Now, at the time of the promise, uh, Abram was older, uh, his wife was older, and they had never had kids in their marriage. And they didn't expect to, and they thought that Sarah was barren. So when God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, that requires a lot of faith, right? That they're going to have at least one child. Maybe that child will be the beginning of this great nation that God is promising. The fact is, though, that any threat, any danger to Abram or his wife Sarai is a threat to that promise. So, you, so you've got to ask yourself, if you're in Abram's shoes, what does he do? when God's promises are threatened, right? We've gotta ask ourselves that. What do we do when God's promises are threatened? When it seems like there's obstacles in the ways of what God is saying is going to happen. When someone seems to be attacking those promises, are we supposed to take those threats seriously? Or are we supposed to kind of just wave our hand and dismiss them? Are we supposed to be proactive about doing something about those threats? Or are we supposed to be passive? I think this story in scripture gives us an answer to this question, okay? So I want to go back because Genesis 12, 10 through 20 is a pretty short story. I want to walk through it verse by verse. So if you have your Bibles, they're they're, they're underneath uh, the chair. If you didn't bring one, they're black Bibles uh, underneath your chair. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 12. So that's the very first book in the Bible, just 12 chapters in and we'll start in verse 10, okay? Okay. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10. I want you to see, you may may have a a Bible of your own. You may have a Bible app on your phone. You can get that out too if you prefer a different uh, translation. And we're going to walk through this step by step. Because at first, I think you might have had some first impressions about this story. But I think it's more complicated than it first appears. Okay? Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10. We read, there was a famine in the land. All right, so God didn't promise there would be no water shortages or food shortages in this promised land. This happens. And so what typically what would happen when people lived in the land of Canaan and famine struck, they would travel south down to Egypt because of the Nile River. And the Nile River is a lot more reliable than rainfall in the Middle East. And Abram follows this playbook to the letter. Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, just a temporary period, because the famine was so severe, okay? Now, you got to stop here. Remember, these are t- two older folks who are now immigrants and foreigners in need in a brand new country they've never been to, okay? They are in a precarious position, and Abram anticipates a threat to his family. We read this in verse 11. As he was about to enter Egypt... He turns to his wife Sarai and says, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And she says, Thanks so much, honey. And then he No, that's sorry, that's not in there. When the Egyptians, <laughs> when the Egyptians see you, Abram says, they will say, That's his wife. Okay, this is not rocket science. Okay, this is the weird part. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Okay. You might think the reaction should have been, hey, she's off limits because she's married. But that is not how things went. (coughs) They would have viewed Abram as an obstacle. If some Egyptian man wants to have her as a wife, he's going to get rid of the obstacle named Abram and then going to take her and marry her. And now you may think Abram is irrational. This is a wild fear that he has. But if you read on, guess what happens? Exactly that. Abram knows. That they are in a dangerous situation, and so he comes up with an admittedly controversial plan. Okay, look at verses. Thir- look at verse 13. Tell them, say that you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Okay, pause right there. Many biblical commentators will say that Abram's plan is purely self-interested and sinful he is telling his wife to lie in order to protect himself it's like he's using sarai as a shield for his own protection and i understand that interpretation i get it i think that's how it looks at first but i think it falls short in three respects okay let me walk through these first of all if abram is correct that some egyptian man wants to have sarai as his wife and they do kill him Guess what's going to happen? Sarah is going to be helpless anyways. If they go into this foreign country announcing, "Hey, he is my husband, I am his wife," an Egyptian might say, "Thanks for the information. Time to get rid of him." The second reason why I think that first interpretation doesn't work is that Abram is using the ambiguity of Hebrew, his own language, to his family's advantage, okay? Just like in English, we can use the word sister in many different ways. Have you ever called a friend your sister, right? Your sister-in-law your sister, an adopted sister your sister? In Hebrew, it works the same way. It can mean more than one thing. Now, this is the weird part. We're talking about something 4,000 years ago. It's going to make you uncomfortable. But we find out from the book of Genesis that Sarai technically is Abram's father's daughter from a previous marriage. Okay? It's gross. We can say it out loud, okay? But the word is correct. They would use the word, the Hebrew word for sister, for many different relatives, including cousins. He is using his own language, the Hebrew language, to confuse the Egyptians and protect his family. Third, and this is so important, the cultural expectation at the time is for a man to approach a woman's brother if he's interested in getting married to her. So... If an Egyptian thinks that Abram is Sarai's brother, he's going to go to him and say, what can I do to have your sister's hand in marriage? And guess what Abram can do at that point? He can make a long list of requirements, right, for a potential suitor. And hopefully the famine will end at some point. They'll go home and the Egyptians will be none the wiser. This is a strategy. This is a plan to protect his family. And you may think everything on that screen, Mitch, is absolutely bogus. I don't believe it. But like it or not, the moment an Egyptian man is interested in Sarai, both of them are in danger. And if the family is in danger, then the promises of God are in danger. And the question still stands, what do you do when God's promises are threatened? This is his strategy to protect his family. The only problem is that Abram doesn't predict which Egyptian would find Sarai interesting. Right? We find out in verses 14 and 15, when Abraham does come to Egypt, the Egyptians see that Sarai is a beautiful woman. But guess what? Whose officials see her? Pharaoh. We're not talking about a, an Egyptian man. We're not talking about just a powerful Egyptian man. We're talking about the most powerful man in the country who can do whatever he wants. And so we read, Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. Pharaoh is going to reverse the traditional order of things. An Egyptian man would approach a brother, treat him well, to become worthy of the sister's hand in marriage. Pharaoh is just going to start with taking this woman as his wife, include her in his harem, and then he's going to send gifts. And we see this in verse 16. He treated Abram well for her sake and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, and camels. Okay, let's pause right here. This story is strange to us. It is culturally foreign to us, but ask yourself, what should Abram do at this point? Is a 75-year-old man and brand new immigrant to Egypt going to bust into the Egyptian palace, sneak past the guards, and somehow get his wife out of there? It would be a great movie, but it's not realistic. Wouldn't be believable. Plan A has failed, and now Abram is in need of divine intervention. And that's exactly what happens in verse 17. We read, the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his house because of Abram's wife, Sarai. Look right here. God doesn't punish Abram. God doesn't punish Sarai. Who does he punish? Pharaoh. The only person punished in this story is Pharaoh because he took a married woman into his home this is the mother of the promises who's going to be a mother of a great nation now like any powerful king it's hard for Pharaoh to imagine the difficulty of this situation so he actually summons Abraham after these plagues strike his house and he says what have you done to me why didn't you tell me she was your wife to which Abraham could have responded Because you would have done exactly what I thought you would do. Kill me and take my wife. It's not like you're going to respect the dignity and sanctity of marriage all of a sudden. You'll do whatever you want. Either way, Pharaoh wants him gone. The story ends in verse 20 of chapter 12. Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men. They sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. He had become very wealthy in livestock And in silver and in gold. Now, the question for us 4,000 years later is how in the world is this story relevant to anybody in this room? Right? I understand that. I get why preachers avoid stories like this in the Old Testament. But this story fits a greater pattern that we see in Scripture. It's not some one-off isolated tale that doesn't matter to us. It shows, let me say this out loud, it shows the enemy's consistent attack on the family of God. Okay? It shows the consistent attack from the very beginning of Scripture of the enemy on the family of God. Okay? We see this over and over in the Bible. The very first time we see the devil appear, right, is in the Garden of Eden. And he tempts Eve, and both of them succumb to the temptation. You might have heard this story growing up. They sin, after they disobey God and they eat from it, the, they both eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does Adam say to God? He says, The woman that you put here with me gave me the fruit. And then I ate it. Satan's attack is to try and put a wedge and drive these, the, the, this husband and wife away from each other. From the very beginning, he was God's family and in in the Garden of Eden He won that battle This morning we read From the book of Exodus Which takes place centuries after Abraham And we see The new Pharaoh attack God's family again Right? All the Israelites are exceeding fruitful, they're multiplying greatly And Pharaoh sees that as a threat He says in Exodus 1 uh, uh, Verse 9 Look, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us We must deal shrewdly with them. That word shrewdly is used for the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Or else they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out they're going to join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. And so we're going to enslave them and then not only that we're going to kill their male children. The Pharaoh says to the Hebrew midwives in verses 15 and 16, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Isn't that exactly the threat that Abram and Sarai faced centuries before? Kill the man and take the woman as a wife? This new Pharaoh is doing it again centuries later, right? In Eden... The enemy attacked husband and wife, and now the enemy is attacking mother and ch- child. 2,000 years ago, the attack continued on the holy family of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. When Jesus was just an infant, the Herod at the time saw him as a threat. And so he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old And under y'all this is a demonic pattern that we see over and over in scripture God has a family God has a chosen people and the enemy is attacking God's family we see it in Eden we see it in Egypt and we see it in Bethlehem God himself even predicted this pattern in Genesis chapter 3 God said after the serpent deceived Eve because you've done this Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. I will put what? Enmity, hostility, antipathy between you, the serpent, and who? The woman. Between your offspring and hers. Right? God draws a clear line and says, y'all are not on the same team. There's no common ground or common good between the two of you. This is a battle. This is a war. And Satan continues to wage it to this day. I think that this attack in Genesis chapter 12 is spiritual warfare against the family of God. Who who has heard the phrase spiritual warfare before? Just raise your hand if you've heard that before. If you grew up in church, you may have heard that phrase used. I think sometimes we associate it with kind of demonic possessions in the Gospels, right? Where someone is writhing on the ground and Jesus comes in and he frees them from from a demonic possession. That's absolutely true. That is spiritual warfare too. But we often don't think that spiritual warfare could be something that's happening in our families or our churches. Because that's too mundane. That's not as exotic or scary as what happens in the Gospels with demonic possession. But I don't think that's true. I think Satan goes after, again and again, God's family. And so I'm going to put a definition of spiritual warfare up on the screen. It's, it's my definition. It's not a quote from the Bible or anything like that. I just think it can help us understand and take these threats seriously. Spiritual warfare is any battle that the devil is willing to fight to defeat God's plans or delay God's promises. Let me say that again. Any battle that the devil is willing to fight to defeat God's plans or delay God's promises, that's spiritual warfare, and we see it in Genesis 12. What a right opportunity for the enemy, right? His husband and wife, this lone family in a new country fleeing famine that's not gonna be treated with dignity and respect. Satan sees that as a great chance to attack God's family. ...and attack God's promises. Now, by God's grace, the devil doesn't win this battle. Instead, what we see is a kind of miniature version of the Exodus. We're going to put some comparisons up on the screen... ...between what happens in Genesis 12... ...and what happens in the book of Exodus. Do you see these patterns? Right In both situations, the family of Abraham experiences a famine. They travel all the way down south to Egypt. In both situations, men are threatened... And so God sends plagues on Pharaohs, and guess what? The Pharaoh's upset. How dare God punish me for doing what I want? In the end, the Pharaoh just says, I don't want these plagues anymore. Get out of my country. They leave Egypt, and guess what? They leave with more money than they have when they arrived. The only way that that makes sense is if God is at work freeing these families from these threats. And I think that this is so, 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 so important. If God can protect his family in the past, that means that God can protect his family today. Whether that's the family of Abraham or the family of the church, we can know God will protect his family. He's done it before, and he can do it again. This is very good news for Christians because Jesus himself promises this protection to the family that we call the church. Right? Jesus says, the gates of Hades will not overcome my church. Have you heard that phrase before? He is promising that he will protect this, this church. The church all over the world. So, that leads us back to our original question. What do we do when God's promises are threatened? At the most basic level, we have to trust. That God can fulfill his promises. And if we go back 4,000 years ago, Abraham didn't have all this knowledge about what was going to come. He didn't realize about all the different ways his family would be threatened. And he didn't know about all the things that God would do to protect his family. And yet, at a very human level, he took these threats seriously and did the best he could at the time to try and prepare In each of those situations where the enemy attacked, God's people made up a plan to try to protect their families. Abram protected his wife, the the midwives in Egypt, tricked Pharaoh, the the Magi, the wise men, right, in, in Bethlehem, outwit Herod by taking another route home. In each situation... God's people take these threats seriously. They don't treat them with nonchalance. They don't wave their hand or dismiss them. They say, no, no, no. Satan can really attack us. The enemy really wants to break us up. And each time they use cunning and wisdom to outwit the enemy's plans. Jesus himself says this. We need to be as innocent as doves and as shrewd as serpents. serpents we need to be innocent as doves and shrewd as serpents i don't think that analogy i don't think that analogy is coincidental he's telling us to be innocent as doves to never do wrong so that good would come but to be cunning to be shrewd to be wise in the case of these threats we can't dismiss them we can't ignore them Um, I don't know if you've noticed this before, but one of the most famous passages in Scripture about spiritual warfare comes right on the heels of Paul's instructions about family. This happens in the letter of Ephesians from chapter 5 and 6. Paul talks a lot about the family, and then all of a sudden, he's talking about spiritual warfare. And I don't think this is an accident. This is what he says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against what? The devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to, let's say this all out loud with three bold words, stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Okay. When we look at Genesis 12, you might think, Mitch, that interpretation of Genesis 12 is crazy. I do not believe you. But you cannot deny the fact that God delivers Abraham's family. He saves the family. He he sends plagues upon the enemy, and they are safe. Ultimately, the Lord is our security. The Lord is our safety. And without him, no promise can stand. Now... It's my opinion that I think God wants us to take these threats seriously. When Paul talks about standing your ground, I don't think he's saying, be passive. Don't take these threats seriously. He's saying, stand your ground, being equipped by God with all his armor. So I want to pray this morning for that armor of God. For all the things he uses to help us withstand the enemy's tactics. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning we see that the devil has many schemes. He went after Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He went after Abram and Sarai in Egypt. He went after all the Israelites who were enslaved by the new Pharaoh. He even went after your son when he was just an infant. We see the enemy's attack on your chosen family. We see the enemy's attacks on the church. We see the enemy's attacks on our families in our own homes. And Father, we cannot fight this battle without you. We can't be strong on our own. We don't have power to fight on our own. So we need this full armor that comes from you. We know that ultimately our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's spiritual forces of evil. And so we ask for each aspect of this armor, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. We want our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. We want the shield of faith. We need the helmet of salvation. We need the sword of the spirit. Father, we pray that you would give us this armor and that we would be able to stand our ground. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.